Well, what do you do in a waiting room? What do you do in the waiting room? Better yet, here's a more accurate question for us today. What did we used to do in waiting rooms? I don't think we can call what we do anywhere waiting anymore. There's no waiting. We don't really wait. We don't even wait at stoplights anymore. Not because we don't stop at stoplights, although there may be some of those souls here, but because when we get to the stoplight, we pull out our phone if we, if we didn't have it put down already. Now, before you roll through a red light, you scroll on your phone. It's like a Pavlovian condition, like, like Pavlov's bell. You see a yellow light, you go for your phone. I have, a few, I have like 20 seconds or if you're at the light at 35 in Palmer, I've got like 45 seconds to three minutes to check my phone. Honking has increased in Austin. Why? Because no one actually waits for the light to turn green. We're on our phone. I don't know. How do I know when it's time to go? I'll just let the person honk me through the intersection. We don't wait well. I don't think we can stand waiting not something we're conditioned to do in our culture today. Here's an example. I've invited a, a few people, or I, I offered, I asked a few people if they wanted to join me in waiting in line for Franklin's barbecue in the last four or five weeks. And I got no's. And you know what the, you know what the response was? I don't want to wait in line. Because to go to Franklin's barbecue, God's favorite, you, you have to get there like 6 or 7 in the morning, sit out in a chair, and you just wait until it opens. Now, to me, it's worth it. I'll do it over and over and over again. You don't want to wait. You want to wait. Jesus, in the beginning of Acts, told his disciples, the apostles, to wait. Wait from the time that I ascend, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. That's what they're being told to do. What we're reading about in this moment is the information that we have, the account from Luke that we have during the period of waiting. They went back to Jerusalem as Jesus instructed them. He did, they did what he said, which was wait for the Holy Spirit. And what did they do while they waited? What did they do while they waited? What did you do while you wait? What do we do as a church while we wait for what God is doing next in the church today? What are we to do? Well, they did three things, and I want to say there's really one kind of very big application for today. They did three things while they were waiting. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. They listened to the Word of God through Peter. They trusted the will of God. They devoted themselves to prayer. They listened to the word of God and let it explain their context in their life. And they trust the will of God. Now, one of my jobs as a pastor and preacher is to apply God's word. What, what does this mean for us? Though there's been some sermons I've preached over the years where you get to the end of the sermon and there's five applications. Or there's three applications. Or every point has a couple of applications. And I think we'll do that to some degree this morning. But I want to say overall, I think one of the main applications of this passage in this waiting period is that the people of God would just wait in prayer for everything that God is doing 
today and in the weeks and the months, the years and the centuries, if the Lord waits before He comes. That while we wait, wait in prayer, see the glory of God in the life of Judas and pray. Pray to God while we wait. That's kind of the overarching, hopefully you hear that in everything this morning, is simply think about everything that God is doing and the way that He works. Because while we wait, it's tempting to think there's no one back there coming. You go to the DMV, you wait long enough, you think, I don't know why this place exists. Is is this actually going to happen? In many senses, we're waiting on the Lord to return. You might be waiting on something that you might be thinking coming in your lifetime. The Lord is going to give you. While we wait, devote ourselves to prayer. Listen to the Word of God. Let it interpret our circumstances and trust the will of God. Look at Acts 1, 12-14 again. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They returned to Jerusalem from Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, short travel. When they'd entered, they went up to the upper room. I, 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 I agree with some others who feel that this is the upper room, not just an upper room. They went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, Zealot, Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were all devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer in one accord. Devoted to prayer means they were persevering in prayer while they were waiting. They were persevering in prayer. How long did they pray? Was it an all-night service? Or we're not, we're not given those kind of details. We're just told they were persevering in prayer. But devoted to prayer is actually how Luke describes those days. In those days when they were waiting, when they were devoting themselves to prayer, those days between Jesus' ascension and receiving the Holy Spirit, what were they doing? Did they go play golf and wait? Did they go to dinner? Did they, they pray? That marked their waiting. Here's the first place that we begin to see that the entire mission of God, that everything God is doing by His Holy Spirit and His witnesses through the book of Acts is happening bathed in prayer. The Holy Spirit arrives while they are devoting themselves to prayer. Lame men are healed during the hour of prayer. The sick and the weak were brought to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Peter was in prison, but earnest prayer was being made for him. As we read Acts, that theme ought to stand out. It ought to start developing in our hearts and in our memory as we go through the book of Acts. Devoted to prayer, it's kind of how they did everything. It's a witness, it's a sign to us to be about, to be in prayer. That we ought to be devoted earnestly to prayer. Let me just ask you a very simple, personal question that you can answer yourself today, and maybe the Lord will help you answer honestly. Is your heart resistant or devoted to prayer? Is your heart and your mind and your life devoted to prayer? When you hear the announcement at church that we're going to be gathering for prayer, What happens in your heart? What kind of response 
Does your heart give? Does your mind give? When a brother or a sister says, let's pray about that, is it annoying? Or are you so happy to go to the Lord in prayer together? Do you zealously love praying for one another and with one another in, in one accord as much as you love critiquing the way other people pray? Do you sit high in your church judging the church while ignoring corporate, small group, and personal prayer? The word and the idea of devotion here is not focused on attention just lasting a few seconds. The word devotion means to persevere devotedly. Part of the word for devotion in this passage is simply the word kataero, which means to endure or to persevere something over an amount of time. We can't plant a seed, one seed, in the spring and then be surprised that there's no harvest in the summer. Likewise, a man must be devoted to tilling and planting row after row after row. Likewise, we ought to be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. If you look at the book of Acts, and you look at the epistles, and you look at the history of Millwood Baptist Church, it is accompanied by prayer, so much so that you can say, whatever good happens, whatever good happens there, it is inseparable from long-standing devotion to prayer. And it is inseparable from being able to say, the Lord must have done that Himself. And also, if the church is weak, and when the church is weak, it may be due to lack of devotion to prayer. Devotion to prayer. There's going to be more teaching about prayer through the book of Acts, but let this sit in your hearts and minds today. The disciples devoted themselves to pray. They devoted themselves to pray. So here's what I would say to you, disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're following Jesus Christ, here's what I think this is saying to us. Devote yourselves to prayer. You devote yourself to prayer. What does that mean? What does it mean to devote yourself to prayer? I think some people are afraid of this. Does that mean 24-hour prayer vigils? I can't go to work tomorrow. What does that mean to devote yourself to prayer? At least a few things. One, it means praying instead of not praying. I mean, just let that simple thing, let that simplicity be the first definition. They prayed instead of not praying. They didn't not pray. They prayed. They, they made their requests known to God. They made their fears known to God. They praised God. They pleaded with God. They asked God. They asked God to help them wait for the Holy Spirit, maybe. Maybe they asked God for faith. Maybe they prayed for the sick. Maybe they prayed for each other's needs. It doesn't actually tell us exactly all the things they were praying in those 10 days, but they were devoting themselves to prayer. That's what they were doing. Talking to God. Asking God. Pleading with God. Praising God. All of which are components of prayer. So they prayed instead of not praying, and they endured in prayer. They prayed for a while. Can you endure in prayer? Do you endure in prayer, church? This would have been something they learned from the Lord Jesus Himself that we can learn as well. To endure in prayer. Perhaps what is lacking in your prayer isn't just a desire to pray or knowing what to pray or knowing how to pray, but just the endurance to pray. Willingness coupled with strength and resolve 
to keep praying. Now listen, we are not being trained to pray while we wait by the, Lord, by the world. The average human attention span has decreased by almost 25%. The average human attention span has decreased by almost 25% from 2000 to 2015. Those 15 years, multiple studies say. The current human attention span is about 8.5 seconds. 8.5 seconds. And I know some of you are thinking, I wish I could get a full eight and a half seconds. It's no secret that our phones, for example, are having debilitating effects on our society and the ability to endure attention to anything. Let me just encourage you, if you have not yet listened to it, go to our website. I would even be okay if you did this right now on your phone. You can turn your phone back off because that would kind of defeat the point of everything I'm saying right now. Go to our website, click on resources. From there, click on family and technology seminar. Our entire family and technology seminar from last year is there. Listen to that first message by Claire Morell, who works with the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She explains how the digital world is affecting everything from our souls to our neurons in our brains, and how digital and social media uses, use is connected to things like depression, anxiety, self-harm, and of course, inability to concentrate and addiction. Probably one of the greatest opponents to our prayer life is our ability to endure attention to anything for a few moments. In his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, this is probably a book that everyone ought to read, no one wants to read. Tony Ranke starts the book by saying this, we check our smartphones about 81,500 times each year. We check our smartphones about 80, 81,500 times each year, or that is once every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. Ranke adds in his book, this was the insight of the 17th century Christian mathematician and proverb-making sage Blaise Pascal. When observing distracted souls of his own day centuries ago, he noticed that if you take away their diversion, if you take away what's diverting some people's attention, you will see them dried up with weariness. Because it is to be ushered into unhappiness as soon as we are reduced to thinking of self and have no diversion. Pascal's point is a perennial fact. The human appetite for distraction is high in every age. We simply have gotten better at it. Because distractions give us an easy escape from the silence and solitude whereby we become acquainted with our own finitude, our inescapable mortality, and how distant God is from all our desires, our hopes, and our pleasures. We like to be distracted. Because when we're not, we start thinking about our lives and about God and about the world. Which is saying something about what the disciples were doing. When they were devoting themselves to prayer, they were taking themselves out of the world, so to speak, and focusing their hearts and their minds on God and His plan and what He's doing. It was a sign that they were going not more distant, but more closer to God and His plan in the world. 
And friends, I'm not just here to make you feel guilty. Oh, I'm such a bad person for getting in my phone so much and having my phone in my bed and for you know, checking my phone at work and while I'm driving. My goal is not just to, to make you feel guilty. We already feel guilt about this already. We already all have kind of tech guilt in the world. But it's a warning. It's a warning. We, we and our, our children are being lured into distracted, mind-numbing, hyper-visual experience that do not train us to pray. Because we're not taught to endure. It's like signing up for a marathon, then eating ice cream and watching movies for six weeks, and you show up at the marathon, and guess what? Well, you don't run a marathon that day. You can't endure 26 miles when you eat ice cream every day and you sit on the couch at night. You can't. You can't do that. And like, likewise, we must ask ourselves, I'm not praying as I could. Am I not enduring in prayer? Perhaps I've been discouraged. Perhaps you've been discouraged. Maybe you didn't realize. Maybe you just didn't know. Maybe you're just learning that prayer requires devotion at times. Maybe you had an overly romantic idea of prayer that you didn't pray and just pray and you just pray and pray and it's easy and it doesn't, doesn't require any effort. Much, much like people get confused about marriage. Where people get confused about church membership, or people get confused about owning a car. They see the car, they, they figure out the payments are good, that nice shiny car, I need a new car. And then, then you got to pay for insurance, and then you got to get the oil changed, and then it, then it breaks, and then, then a wheel pops. And then, well, this is harder than I thought, keeping this car up. I thought it was supposed to help me, I have to give it effort. Consider that Paul, when he prayed to the church, he asked the church, because he knows what prayer is like, he asked the church to fervently pray for him in Romans 15.30. That word there being in Romans 15.30, I would ask you, church, to fight and agonize in prayer for me. Prayer takes, requires devotion. Friends, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray with the church. Pray in small groups. Pray when you're alone. Praise God in prayer. Pray first thing in the morning. Pray last thing at night. When the church is gathering together to pray, come and pray. This is one of the reasons in our service we take time to pray at least twice. We just pray. We're not doing anything else. We're praying our confession. We're praying the gospel. We're praying under the leadership of a pastor. Pray. Devote yourselves to prayer. You hear a call to prayer in the church, come to the prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. When you get together in your life groups, pray. Really pray for each other. Pray in your homes. Pray with your children. Devote yourselves to prayer. And while you do that, trust the Scriptures. Here's the second thing we see them happening, trusting the Scriptures. Peter comes out of this time of prayer and begins to say something about Acts 69 and 109 that Cal read for us earlier. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. This is ultimately going to be a lesson in letting Scripture explain and interpret what, your, what God is doing in the world and ultimately in each of your lives and in the church. How did Judas become an apostle? What happened there? Peter's going to deal with that. Acts 1, 15-17, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of brothers was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. That's the kind of, a, you could say it was a sermon of his title, the titles of his sermon right here. Scripture had to be fulfilled. Let me just tell you, church, Scripture has to be fulfilled. Scripture cannot be, it will never go unfulfilled, ever. 
It has to be fulfilled. This is how Peter makes sense of what happened with Judas who betrayed Jesus. Peter mentions two messages, two passages from the book of Psalms, 69 and 109. Let's look at these. First, go in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 69. Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is actually very similar to Psalm 109 that Cal read for us. It's fulfilled by both Judas and Jesus. It's a psalm that we find out is spoken by the Holy Spirit. It was written by David and spoken by David. And it finds its fulfillment in Jesus and Judas. Psalm 69. And listen, it's the last scripture Jesus fulfilled before he died. Psalm 69. King David wrote about those who attack him with lies, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ who was attacked. Pick up in Psalm 69, verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. This is the first passage of several in Psalm 69 that is fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus said this was fulfilled in him. Jesus quotes this verse when explaining to his disciples why people are going to hate them and why people hate him. Jesus says in John 15, 25, the word that is written in their law, those that hate me, the word that is written in their law is fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Psalm 69, verse 4. Keep reading in Psalm 69. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't take anything. But now I'm going to pay the debt? Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. You hear, you hear David and Christ. It's for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Look at chapter 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. John quotes this verse when describing what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple. Early in his ministry, Jesus went into the temple. He turned over the tables. He drove out the money changers and the robbers. And what did it say when Jesus did this? John 2.17 says, His disciples remembered. When they saw Jesus cleansing the temple, it says His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered Psalm 69 and they realized it was coming true because Jesus was passionate about holy worship in the Lord's house. But back to Psalm 69, verse 9, continues, And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul quotes this little sentence in Romans chapter 15, verse 2 to 3. Paul is teaching the church how to love one another, how to love their neighbors, how to love each other. And here's what Paul says. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For, Paul says, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
That's Psalm 69, verse 9. Love others just like all, all the sin toward you has fallen on Christ. Love each other that way as well. Absorb one another's sin. Now let's pick up in Psalm 69. Just go down to verse 16 and read through 21. That's where we're headed, verse 21. Answer me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love, for it is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. You hear both David and Jesus' experience. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. That would ultimately happen through Jesus raising from the dead. Not being saved from his enemies, but being crucified by his enemies and raising from the dead even overcoming the enemy of death itself. Verse 19, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. You know every one of them, God. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. Verse 21, They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Does that sound familiar to you? The events fulfilling this verse are in every gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the last thing that happened to Jesus before he died. John records it like this. John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished... On the cross, about to breathe his last breath, he said, and John says, to fulfill Scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, When he took the sour wine they gave him, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Why did Jesus say, I thirst? He was thirsty. But he also said it to fulfill Scripture. It had to be fulfilled. It had to be. The moment Jesus is about to take his last breath, he recalls Psalm 69. And the events of Psalm 69 are fulfilled in their ultimate meaning. The Roman soldier walks right into what the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David without knowing it, offering Jesus sour wine. And there could not be a more poetic, dramatic, romantic way to die. Jesus died having drank the sour wine. He prayed to God in the garden the day before, saying, God, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way, let let this cross, the, the, the cup of this suffering, pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross in obedience to the Father. And God the Father gave the cup, the Spirit spoke it beforehand through David, and now Christ on the cross drinks it. Not just sour wine in his mouth, but the sin of the whole world, the reproaches of the whole world fell on him. He, he drank the sour wine of our sin. 
not just the sour wine, but the sin. All our bitter, gross pride, our promiscuity, the little sins that we protect and permit and feed, the hearts of rebellion against authority and God and man, lies, selfishness. He drank it for us. That's what Jesus is doing when he's dying on the cross. That's the cup that he was drinking, that he discussed with his father. He would drink the wrath of God that we deserved. He would drink it himself, take it on himself by dying on the cross for sinners like me and you. And Jesus took our sins on himself, and now to each of us, he offers the cup of the new covenant. He offers us sweet, saving wine of his own blood. You and I can be forgiven for every sin that we have committed in our hands, in our mouth, with our eyes, with our ears, and those in our heart because Jesus drank the sour wine. Because he drank our sin. He took it on himself. And he shed his saving blood to wash away our sin. And just before Jesus died, he was in that same upper room with the disciples. The very upper room, it seems at least possibly, where the disciples are now praying. These ten days of waiting. And there before he went to the cross, he broke bread and gave it to them, saying, this is my body broken for you. This is a picture of me on the cross for you. And he gave them a glass of wine, saying, this is my blood shared for you, shed for you. Let me just ask you this point. Do you recognize that Jesus is the Son of God? And he drank the cup of every sin for you. You feel how gross your sin is. You feel like you can't get, get rid of it. You, you feel its sourness. Jesus drank the sour wine to cleanse the sin of any who would trust in Him today. Trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins. Confess your sin to Jesus Christ today, to God today knowing that he drank the wine, the sour wine, for you. But keep reading Psalm 69. The Holy Spirit also spoke through David about Judas. How do we make sense of a world where Jesus went to drink the sour wine because Judas, one of his own, one of the twelve he chose, betrayed him? Psalm 69, verse 22 to 25. Let their own table be before them a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. If you're interested later, that's quoted in Romans 11. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their hearts. This is what Peter quotes in Acts chapter 1. Acts, Psalm 69, verse 25. And this is, this is my imagination. I, I can't say this, but you just have to imagine that it hits Peter. It, it hits him. It, it, he, he jumps out he, from their time of prayer. He comes to them with Psalm 69 and 109, and his first words are, it had to be fulfilled. The great betrayal of the Messiah. Why? How did this happen? Remember, Peter was the one 
who had the hard time understanding the plan all along. Do you ever have a hard time understanding, accepting God's plan? Well, not every event of your life is predicted in Scripture. That's for sure. But we can learn some lessons here. And Peter did not believe Jesus, and he actually opposed Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And, and the leaders of Jerusalem are going to have me killed. What, what did Peter say when Jesus said that? No, 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 I will never let that happen to you. I'll never let you die. I'll die before you die. But what Peter couldn't see coming was Judas. Judas was one of the twelve, and Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Of all things, one of the twelve betrayed his own master, the Son of God, with a kiss. Judas had gone to the officials, the chief priests. One of those that Jesus spoke about would have him killed. And he gave Jesus up and he took 30 pieces of silver for it. And as the guards came to take Jesus away... That night, Peter still didn't get it. So what does Peter do that night? He starts swinging. gets a sword out, starts swinging. And the gospel records that Peter actually cut off a soldier's ear in the process. Not to worry, Jesus picked it up and put it back on. And told Peter, put the sword away. And then Jesus just went with them. He just went with them. It's like he was walking in Judas' plan. What are Peter and the disciples feeling at this moment? Confused, hopeless, and betrayed. Betrayed by one of their own. Even one Jesus had chosen was the very reason that Jesus died. Judas took the money, betrayed Jesus with a kiss. What's going on? Why, God? Why, Jesus? Why did you let them take you? Jesus. Why weren't we fighting back Jesus? And it's now, after Jesus has ascended in prayer, it's coming to Peter. He gets it. He stands it before the disciples, the apostles, and he assures them, it had to happen. Judas had to happen. It's all right there in Psalm 69, guys. They hated Jesus without a cause. 69 verse 4. And remember Jesus in the temple, 69 verse 9. Remember when Jesus says, I thirst and I drank the sour wine before he died? Psalm 69, guys. And Jesus knew it. He knew about Judas. It's right there. The Holy Spirit foretold what God had planned about Judas to get Jesus to the cross. He had Judas pegged all along. It says right here in Psalm 69, May there can't be a desolation that no one dwell in their tents. Luke gives the reader this context in Acts chapter 1, verse 18 through 19, saying, Now, Luke's explaining, let me explain, this man Judas, he had acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, that 30 peters of silver, he went and bought a field, went and invested in some land. And having hung himself there, he fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. That was Judas's end. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. Judas used that money that he got for betraying Jesus to buy a field, and then he hung himself on it, and his dead guts burst everywhere when he hit the ground. 
And here's a reminder early on in the book of Acts from Peter helping us see in Psalm 69 and 109 that Acts is Luke's compilation of God accomplishing his plan to save people from every nation. God's going to do it. God's plan will not be thwarted. God's word will be fulfilled. We serve a God who foretold and orchestrated his plan to save sinners by his son drinking the sour wine after and through being betrayed by one of the apostles that he chose for himself. All of Psalm 69 had to be fulfilled. God's plan has to come true. Listen, you might have plans. But God's plan to see the gospel of Jesus Christ spread to the nation so that every nation, tongue, and tribe, and us here today can hear about Jesus. They will one day surround the throne forever singing what it says in Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. While the disciples are waiting, they get clarity about Judas. God was in control all along. What happened there in Jerusalem a few days earlier was no accident. Psalm 109 is much like Psalm 69. It's an imprecatory in its nature. It is to a prayer by David. It is to a prayer by David to bring justice to his enemies. When you first read that quote from Psalm chapter 109, it sounds like filling the apostles' empty chairs, just a matter of kind of administrative bookkeeping or you got a football team and you need one more guy, so let's, you know, let's, let's get somebody else. Let another take his office. It sounds so kind of neutral. But it's actually a final statement to say about Judas. You're finished. This is not even a m- memorial for Judas. Your name is no longer on the twelve foundations of the new Jerusalem. You're absolutely, utterly replaced by someone who will be a witness about Jesus to the nations. Look at Psalm 105. Just pick up in verse 6 for the sake of time. After David is saying in similar fashion to Psalm 69, wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me. People are attacking me with lies. Pick up in Psalm 109, verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May the enemies of God's king, may his days be few. And may another take his office. That's what Peter mentions. But look what, how the psalm continues. We get, we get an idea of what it means for someone else to take his office. May his children be fatherless. And his wife, the widow, may his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plummet the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity to his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. I mean, could. Let not the sin of his mom be blotted out. Let them before the Lord continually, that they may cut off the memory of them from the earth. When Peter mentions, let another take his office, it's not just a technicality about we need 12. It's a way of saying, Jesus is 
Judas is through. It's like getting fired. And then as you walk out of the office, someone else is already sitting at your desk. Judas is utterly, entirely cut off. There's, a, there's some warning here in this. Notice is to be given to those who betray the king. To those who betray David, who, who forsake God by forsaking his king. What is their end? We're not allowed to talk like this, are we? It's not polite. But we're seeing here that David is justified to pray this because God is justified when his king is justified in righteousness. When Judas goes down headlong into the field of blood, but Jesus comes up out of the grave to offer his blood in heaven, it's clear as day that Jesus is the righteous son and king of God. And Judas received his just reward. David's wish that his enemies would be forgotten on the earth is language for God, prove that you are God. Do justice to those who oppose you. And David is putting himself in a position where he trusts that God is going to bring justice to his enemies. So when Peter leads the church to cast lots and see who is the apostle to take Jesus' place, it's not only about the twelve as Jesus planned in Revelation foresees, being fulfilled, saying Judas has found his appropriate place in the plan of God. And now it's necessary, according to Scripture, to fulfill what Psalm 109 said was going to happen about Judas, someone else is going to take his place. Look at their prayer when they were replacing Judas. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 24 to 25, the emphasis is on replacing Judas. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Do you know the heart of Judas? Remember, that's what Jesus said early on, John 6, 70, I did not choose you, or did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew it way back. God judges the heart. He knows the heart. And, and so they pray, Lord, you know the hearts. We, we, we didn't have Judas in that category, but you know the hearts of all. And God already knows my heart and your heart and the person next to you and the heart of all the people who have wronged you and your heart when you wrong others. He knows the hearts of all men. He knows David's hearts and he knows the hearts of David's enemy. Friends, that ought to drive us to run even faster to Christ who drank the sour wine for us, who took sin for us. God knows the hearts of all men. So what do they do? They entrust themselves to God. They entrust themselves to God, the one who judges justly, and they trusted Him. So it says, keep reading in Acts 1, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these Two, you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go down to his own place. And the lot fell on Matthias. Now, I don't want to go on too far about casting lots here. But this is the last decision the church made before they received the Holy Spirit in the next chapter. We don't see any more casting lots in the New Testament. We're not told by Paul to roll dice or flip coins or play a paper, rock, scissors to determine our destiny. We're to follow Scripture and the Spirit of God in prayer. That said, God chose Matthias. They, they cast lots, actually quite a frequent 
practice in ancient Israel. God wasn't looking down going, what are you idiots doing? That was actually practiced often through Israel. Israel cast lots to determine everything from resource distribution, try to figure out who should go to war, to figure out who has sinned and made us lose that battle in, John 7, in Joshua 7 and more. It's not abnormal that they cast lots to see if God chose Joseph or Matthias. It's their means of saying, God, you choose. You knew Judas. You know our hearts. We know that finding an apostle to fill Judas's place, it's not us. It's for you to decide. So they trusted God. In the ways that God had given them. They trusted God. And then they went forward in the will of God. Judas was God's will. The scripture had to be fulfilled. We could do our best to determine God's will and trust scripture will be fulfilled too. That's what they did while they waited. They devoted themselves in prayer to God. They listened to the word of God. And let it instruct them about what God is willing to do and has done and will do in the world. And they trust the will of God about this new apostle. Here's the great application today. Glory in the sovereignty of God. Glory in the providence of God. Glory in the foresight, pre-telling word of God, which has to be fulfilled. The plan of God to save sinners went through Judas. The Spirit foretold Judas. Judas is not an accident that God worked around. The Spirit spoke of Judas beforehand, but now in God's redemptive plan, now the twelve is complete. Church, Scripture will be fulfilled. God's plan to save sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, by the spirit and power witness of his church, it's going to happen. It will happen. Scripture has to be fulfilled because it's God's word. You cannot stop, slow down, or speed up God's plans and timing. But you can wait. You can wait. Even when you bump into things like Judas, in any trial, any trouble, any affliction, devote yourselves to prayer. Listen to the word of God. Trust the will of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that it is today not only ringing in our ears, your scripture is fulfilled, that you are sovereign, that Christ has died for us, but that it is taking root and seated in our hearts. God, you know our hearts. You know our hearts. Would you reveal to us if there's any way that we're living in sin? Would you reveal to us if, if there's any part in our heart that's just lacking endurance in prayer, is resistant to prayer? Would you give us strength? Would you 
Help us to be devoted to prayer, to your word, and to your will. We wait, Father. We wait for the day that Jesus will return. And every enemy who is opposed to Christ will find their right justice according to you and your holiness. And in the meantime, we pray and we hope for more and more and more people to come to know Christ and find forgiveness through His taking on their sin. And as we walk forward in the plan to see other people come to know Jesus, help us wait well. Help us devote ourselves to prayer. Call our minds to prayer. Lure us to prayer more than the world lures us to its entertainment. And help us be encouraged by your word always coming true. Help us trust whatever you decide is good and right. You know the hearts of men. Help us wait well. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.